This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Jeffrey Chown has joined me to cover Danny's first POV chapter in A Clash of Kings. Jeff is Professor Emeritus at Northern Illinois University. He's a real TV and film buff. Back in the day, he was teaching a university-level class on A Game of Thrones. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jeff. After that, I include an excerpt of my conversation with Kate Ollie. Kate is at Oxford, and she talks about the difference between castle fortifications down south and forts and villages up north. So I thought that that provided a bit of an interesting parallel between the high towers down south and the Mormons up north, which we talk about in this chapter. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. Jeffrey Chown. Jeff, do you feel like this is the lowest Danny? Do you feel like this is the lowest point in Danny's narrative? Uh, no, I think uh, it's part of the narrative where we see her skills at dealing with people and uh, being a leader. Uh, she's taking this kind of ragtag band of uh, uh, remnants of the, the Caldrogo's uh, yeah. force across. Uh, into the desert uh, on this journey. So in some ways uh, it's a low point in that she's doesn't have as much power as she'll have later, but she uh, certainly demonstrates uh, some qualities that I think are key to her success. So. Oh, okay. All right. Now I was thinking, I I mean, that's certainly we have to talk about some of her character development that's kind of set up here, but I was thinking like, you know, classic Kurt Vonnegut structure. You know, he, he famously he said there is only one story: man in whole. <laughs> and, in hold? And, no, in whole. Like if, like a, you know, you. Fell oh, in W H O L E. Yeah. Uh, okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, in, in other words, you you need a you need a main character with a problem. You need to yeah, establish yeah. the problem, and then you've got yourself a story because that person can now dig out of the problem. Now, of course, that's. A little bit reductive, but I I kind of think here that um, you know here we ha- Danny certainly has a pro- she has a very real and tangible problem that she will spend you know this next book digging her way out of. Um, but of course, so that's 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 one way to look at this chapter. But what you're saying is that. Actually, what this chapter does is it establishes sort of her characteristics as a leader 
Yeah, as I was rereading it, I was thinking she's attentive to who she's working with. She pays attention uh-huh. to who's in the tribe. She gets the story on uh, Jorah. She makes decisions about sending the Night Riders out right. to scout. She's marshalling the dwindling resources that they have. And uh, I think she's a leader, as opposed to her brother, who started this whole thing. Right. Her brother wouldn't have a clue what to do out here. So. Uh... Yeah, no, you're right. She makes the right decisions in this particular chapter. She seems to be the person that is, I mean, it's not like, it's. I mean, she's making the decision based on this comet, and it just happens to be the right direction, Yeah, you know, to find the, to the city of Karth or whatever. But um, that, to me, I, I hadn't really thought about it in those ways, because I thought, well, she's she's a she's a child and she happens to be her magical thinking happens to coincide with the right path maybe she's just getting lucky but you're also pointing out that she's managing her resources well yeah i think uh i like danny in this section a lot more than i do in later books i think Uh, listen i have a question for you about this this uh sure. chapter which is i know you've uh, studied the bible more than i have but uh-huh. uh it seems to resemble a bit when moses goes into the desert yeah uh, it's a little bit that isn't it huh what do we know about what happens to the tribe of people that moses takes out on uh this this journey uh away from egypt uh yeah i mean i mean famously he's leading slaves so that's the first thing and he's sort of a, there is a miraculous beginning to that uh, event which you know in this case it's dragons in that case it's sort of like the 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 escape from pharaoh other than that i mean i guess i'm not sure i see that many parallels uh, other than that um you know she will become a liberator at some point but she's leading them to a a promised lands. So, I mean, they're going to Karth, which, I mean, she has a bunch of tangles there with uh, wizards and yeah. <laughs> uh, merchants and things like that. But yeah, uh, yeah, she's yeah. Uh, it, it's part of the journey that, that you you know what you're probably right. There is probably some Moses typology here because you know she. I think famously she told her Kalasar, you're not going to be, you're going to serve me differently. You're not going to be slaves anymore. Mm -hmm. If you you stay, you're going to choose to stay. So there is something of her liberator muscles that she's already stretched. And there is something magical about her. And it could be that the, you know, the, you know, in this, in this chapter, she interprets the comet as something that the gods have sent to show her the way that's a little bit Moses, right? Like the like the, yeah, the, yeah. the the fire, the the pillar of fire in the desert yeah, that they're yes. following. That much I remember. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that there might be some parallels there. Well, I I want to develop another kind of weird. I'm always interested in the you know, the antecedents, the stories uh, where Martin goes to stimulate his imagination uh-huh. to write this kind of thing. And I know that uh, as an undergraduate, he was uh, at the Northwestern University in Evanston. <clears throat> excuse me. And um, he was very interested in uh, uh, Nordic tales and right. uh, Mideastern stuff, but also Native American uh, uh, yes. history and uh, experience. And um, I was struck, uh, I, I did a film some years back about uh, the Black Hawk War, uh, which was in Illinois, the 
one of the features of the uh, Blackhawk War was that there was an initial clash between Blackhawk's band. Uh, they were called the British Band, about 200 Native Americans. And they got chased uh, after they lost this initial battle. They got chased like 200 miles over a couple of months across the wilds of, of Wisconsin. Remember, this is uh -huh. in 1832, so it's a very dense foliage, and uh, they're away from their cornfields, they're away from their hunting grounds, and uh, this force of uh, uh, American army and militia are chasing them uh, on this long uh, uh trail uh that ends up at uh, the blackhawk i'm sorry ends up at the bad axe river and there's a big massacre there mm. that finally ends mm. the war but what i was struck about was that uh one of the ways that they track blackhawk's band uh is that uh there's a trail of carcasses of horses and uh old people who have died and been left by the road and so as, oh, as uh, yes. the americans are chasing the blackhawk band uh it very much resembles what's going on with right. uh, Danny's force going across the desert where they're, they're progressively losing the, the uh, uh, weaker members of the, right. the group and they're, they're eating their, their horses and they're uh, uh, trying to find some way to survive as, as they, they, of course uh, in, in the Blackhawk case, they end up uh, with a tragic massacre, but finally uh, uh, Danny does deliver herself to the, uh, um, to, Karth and then eventually uh, consolidates her power in the in the overall arc yeah. of the book. But uh, I, I was curious. I, I know that uh, Martin was in Chicago for a while, and they had this uh, exhibit down at the University of Chicago of the George Catlin paintings of uh, the various tribes around huh. the Mississippi. And uh, I, I, if I ever met Martin, I would want to ask him, yeah. what did you know about the, the Blackhawk uh, story well, from 1832? Yeah, so. I think that he has said that the Dothraki are, are modeled after the Mongols and the Native Americans. Yeah, yeah, that's very And so evident. what you're saying absolutely could be the case. I mean, I guess there are there are different eras of the Mongols, and of course there are different tribes and eras of Native Americans as well. But the fact that he was, you know, he was in university is what you're saying mm -hmm. learning specifically about native americans in that region yeah you could imagine anyone tracking danny would see see pretty easily her trail right you know she's building pyres along the way and um they're, they're leaving horse carcasses that they have to eat along the way and i guess uh, one of the one of the babies dies Right, and one of her uh, handmaid, the one that taught her about sex, yeah, dies out there. That's the, right. Uh, it's one of the poignant moments of her flight, I suppose, is that she kind of pauses the uh, the the journey and uh, uh, ministers to uh, the old woman uh, uh, who who eventually dies. But uh, let me read the uh, synopsis of this chapter, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Okay. Upon realizing that. Almost certain death lies in every direction. Danny leads her bedraggled Kalasar into the Red Waste. She names her dragons and learns how to feed them. She witnesses the death of two of her company and commands her riders to scout possible cities or caravans. Then, 
Finally, she makes her way to the ruins of an old city, and she survives by scavenging. There, Danny learns about Jorah's lost love and eventual exile. Jogo returns with news of a city called Karth. Three representatives from the city have come to see her dragons. So, Jeff Chown, uh, is there is there something about this chapter that strikes you as significant, or you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I uh, well, several things, but uh, let's uh, maybe shift uh, away for a second to uh, Jorah because this is a chapter we're, we're out there on the road. So, uh, so many of the uh, Martin chapters are about uh, traveling, uh-huh. and. Uh, Danny is traveling. The next chapter is going to be about Arya traveling with Hot, Hot. What's his name? Hotspur and uh, a couple of her people, and they run into a fight. And then there's going to be a, ch- a chapter about uh, Jon Snow traveling with with uh, uh, Mormont's father. Uh, yeah, yeah. But the, but this is one of his favorite devices: is to get characters out on the road traveling. And what happens is that they tell each other stories when they're out there. Yeah. And uh, uh, Danny sort of interviews uh jorah about why are you out here and and he proceeds to tell her a lot of the story of his background about uh his two wives and uh, mm-hmm. uh how he came to be in exile and uh it's a very interesting revelation about the dynamic of why he's with danny and the the upshot is that he, he talks about uh about being a lord at bear island and mm-hmm. uh he fell in love with a uh, a beautiful uh, how do you pronounce her name is it Liness? I was think I saw I thought it was Lenice but I I, Lenice, I don't uh, really Hightower. know yeah yeah uh, she's very beautiful but she's high born she's yeah. uh, materialistic she wants her luxuries and uh, he fights his greatest fight at this tournament he's in the, a passion he actually stands off uh, Jamie Lannister, uh-huh. and they award him the uh, the prize for the tournament. And at that moment, he seeks the hand of uh, uh, this high tower woman. And yeah, uh, he's she... kind of fueled by his passion for her, and and wins right. the tournament. He play he, he does the best he's ever done. Right, he, he'll mm-hmm. never yeah. match. And it's all downhill after yeah, this. That's right. That's right. His uh, prowess is declines after he never wins another tournament uh-huh. and the implication symbolically of course is that this woman is draining him and uh ultimately she leaves him and goes off with somebody else yeah and... she has expensive tastes exactly her vision of what you know being a lord is probably you know based on her her high tower upbringing and she goes to Bear Island and realizes this these these guys live in a, basically a, a lodge. I I, I pictured uh, <laughs> Betty Davis coming in and saying, "What a dump! You know, what's up? What, what a dump! I'm not gonna live. <laughs> I'm not gonna camp for the rest of my life." <laughs> yep. Um, so so anyway, she 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 does not want to be on Bear Island, and uh, right. and he wants to satisfy her, and so he he does. Uh, what does he do? He 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 sells uh, some of the poachers to slavers. He uh, right. We uh, don't learn about that in this chapter. He kind of leaves chapter, that no. out, right? right? But yeah. he he tries to satisfy her by bringing in a musician and hiring a cook. Yes, and then she and then he wants to travel with her so she can spend some time in the south. And of course, it's just bleeding him dry. He's just he has no more money left. So he then he decide he he leaves out the part about. 
about slaving the poachers, right? But then he yeah, says, that, we found that out in a different book. I'm I'm sorry, I kind of jumped ahead, but we do know from from this one though that he becomes a sellsword, sellsword in Essos, and he suggests that he sells her jewels. Yeah, and yep. she, she, she can't, can't put up it. with that. So, yeah, yeah. so she's this kind of demanding uh, wife who uh, he's desperate to try to satisfy. And of course, uh, what he doesn't tell Danny is that uh, part of his journey is that he becomes a spy for Varys, mm-hmm. and that's what what leads him to Danny. And so that's the yeah, couple, couple later on that's details he leaves out, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I guess I'm kind of interested. This is the chapter oh I, I left out the one key thing at the end of the story uh she danny asked him well what did she look like and he as he's kind of walking out the door he's sort of emotionally distraught uh-huh. telling her the story as he's walking out the out, out of the tent he says i guess she looked like you yeah and danny at that moment knows that he's in love with danny and that he's trying to replace uh the Hightower woman uh-huh. with Danny. And so I think that's going to undergird their relationship going forward. So, uh, yeah, he doesn't so. veil it very well. And she, you know, she's 14. She's like, mm-hmm. she, I mean, in addition to being on the brink of starvation and trying to figure out how to mother dragons for the first time and <laughs> got to feed them uh, charred meat. So. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, she's in charge of trying to keep this band of people alive in the desert. Now she has to figure out whether or not she could get along with this older man who's who's basically professed his love for her. Yeah. And she tries to imagine it. You know, she's like, eh, trying to imagine being with him. Hmm. Right. No Drogo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, no. Uh, she she closes her eyes and she sees Drogo. Uh-huh, so it's yeah. uh, no one's ever gonna be able to live up to Drogo. Not really a, an ideal candidate for a fourteen year old. Yeah, he's not attractive. He's he's a big old bear. This guy. Yeah, yeah, he's a bear. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, I I do feel like it's just one more thing that she has to make a decision about. It's like, uh-huh. all right, I've got an option here. Do I take the option? Mm, nah. I don't think. Well, I well he, he's also a very useful advisor. I mean, yeah, he's, he's lived good. in Essos, and so he knows a lot of the culture here. He's talked to traders. He knows something of the maps, and so uh, in terms of uh, needing an advisor when she's out there on the road, uh, he's pretty useful to have around. Not to mention the fact that he's an excellent fighter, as we'll see often later in the story. So, yeah, and because he does love her, she can kind of kind of exploit that devotion right she Mm -hmm. she needs loyal fighters and he's loyal he's probably loyal in a in a way that maybe she shouldn't trust but she's what he's (laughs) he's what she's got would you say that she's using him i don't i wouldn't i'm kind of struggling with danny's motivation ultimate motivations yeah and here's the here's why I was just reading the chapter about Phaon, and Phaon, everyone's got a different interpretation of this comet. You know, the the comet, you know, portends war, and some people think that the comet is heralding dragons and all this business. Phaon basically thinks, the comet's for me, it's my comet, it's sort of, uh, the it's heralding my return to Pike as the, you know, the, the new heir apparent of Pike. 
And I was reading that and I thought, this is the most egotistical guy I've ever met. <laughs> you know, that the, everyone's got an interpretation of the comet and your interpretation is that it belongs to you. <laughs> That's stupid. And now I, I get to this chapter and basically Danny is saying the same thing. Like the gods put it there for me. Yeah. You know, I saw it for the first time when we, you know, in Drogo's pyre. And I, yet I think I don't feel what. At this point, I don't feel about Danny the way I feel about Theon, but I'm a little bit in the what's good for the goose is good to the gander situation here. Yeah. Because if it is egotistical to think that the comet is there for you, I probably need to think that about Danny to some extent. Well, I uh, the, when, when I think of comets, uh, the first thing that jumps into my head is that uh, the Mark Twain story that he uh, was born in the year that uh, Haley's comet oh, appeared right. and then died in the year when it made it, it was 76 years later that it came a second time. And uh, of course it also comets figure in uh, one of his stories where he's got a, Oh, in, in Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court, That's right. he knows the comet is coming. And so he uses the appearance to sort of dazzle the, uh, uh, <laughs> the natives that he's encountering as he goes back to uh, King Arthur's court. Uh-huh. So, uh, I mean, that's my association with comets. I don't know if that's what Martin was thinking about, but it's, you're correct that everybody's funny. using comets for their own devices. So. Now, here's the thing we, we might say with Danny: if the dragons are linked, you know, Martin's whole cosmology is magic, right? Yeah, the seasons are magical, and the dragons There's three are three eggs. There are three three dragons, and yeah, nobody right. can quite explain how she birthed three. Egg, eggs but that's, that's right. the magic that that's drives right. the story so you know she lights the pyre and sees the the comet and so one could say she's right maybe the comet does herald the return of dragons in martin's world in which case maybe her maybe she's justified to have this kind of reading of the comet i don't know i mean i think that that's pretty popular reading i don't know if it's the only reading of the comet i mean it it certainly features very very prominently at the beginning of this book now streaming only on disney plus my name is taylor welcome to the eras tour experience taylor swift's record-breaking eras tour Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. One of the other th- parts of this chapter that we're discussing is, is a very descriptive uh, passage about what the dragons look like. And uh-huh. they're, they're mentioned as being having this bright green in their scales. Yeah, black, cream, and green, basically. While we're talking about the dragons, I'll note that in this chapter, she interprets the dragon's life, and here's a quote. She says, Given life by the deaths of her son, Drogo, and Miri Mazdor. So three people, three humans had to die in order to birth the dragons in yeah. Danny's perspective. And it's almost like a reincarnation or something like that. Something yeah. like that, or something some kind of dark magic that requires a human sacrifice or something like that. 
I was kind of hoping that they would address some of that in this new House of the Dragon show. Because if it takes a human sacrifice to birth a dragon, I kind of feel like that changes how <laughs> how we view these dragons pretty dramatically, I think. Well, the House of Dragons, it's like the dragons are promiscuous. They're all over the place. Different people have dragons. Some Uh have big dragons. Some have smaller Uh dragons. But the the currency of dragons in this story that we're discussing is that there's only three of them in the whole world. And uh, that's basically what Danny has. That's that's why these uh, magicians and warlocks and merchants that she's going to encounter in Essos are interested Mm -hmm. in her because she's got these three dragons and that they're a potential for some sort of a power shift, but uh, that's basically what she, what she's got. That's gonna she's gonna parlay into uh, uh, attaining an army and uh, riches and uh, trying to fulfill her destiny of getting back to Westeros to become the yeah. uh, king of king of it all or queen of the but all. Well, and that world. kind of starts a pattern for her, and you don't really see it until these later books, but. The pattern with Danny is that she goes to a new city. She kills all of the leadership. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she t- and she takes over. And yeah. in this case, I guess this is like a, a serial killer who's getting, you know, her first taste of blood or something. Yeah. <laughs> she goes to Karth and she realizes that she's been done dirty. And they, they basically uh-huh. are tricking her that they want to keep her there as a slave and and take her dragons and all this business. And they're, they're basically conning her at first and then overtly toward the end are making a pretty explicit play. And she's able to, you know, use her new trick, you know, her new dragon fire trick and, right. and get out of the situation. And and you kind of forgive her for that, but then she does it over and over. <laughs> we forgive her, though, because she... she authentically seems to want to set people free to end slavery uh-huh. and so she seems like she has these positive motives and she could be this kind of uh uh beneficial uh uh she's a liberator what, what did dossiefsi call it the uh uh in the grand inquisitor the uh oh, i don't know enlightened despot oh interesting um and uh so she she's ending slavery great hooray for danny but then she become so vindictive and so over the top in terms of just murdering and hanging bodies by the road. Yeah. And, uh, she really becomes kind of uh, uh, crazed with the violence that she uh, is able to enact. So, and of course that ultimately reaches into when she uh, has the dragons at full force at the end of the HBO series. Anyway, when yeah. she sort of does a nuclear attack on the, uh, uh, King's Landing. Yeah, and I wonder how that's going to play. I mean, that's I think that uh, you you probably just touched on you know, touched on Well, nerve I jumped with ahead like, of the novel, didn't I? I no, I, no, I no, in. you're totally fine there. I just feel like most people if if people had to point to one one gripe with the final series, that that final season is that they don't like the turn that Danny takes, right? Yeah, but you you see the seeds of it in this chapter. I do think or, that you in see this the, section anyway. I so. do think so. I think you yeah. know you have a callback to Mary Mazdur, and you kind of almost have a an explanation for her death. Like her death was required to birth the third dragon, and so you've had the death of her son, you know, human sacrifice number one. You have the death of Drogo, human sacrifice number two. 
and now you have the you know you need you need to strap the witch to the the fire to to make the third egg hatch at least that's how i'm interpreting her reading of of that event yeah and yeah. you almost see at that point it's like okay that's that should tell us something about your character even though she's in a one down position in this chapter so you're kind of rooting for her, for her to survive right uh-huh you know she's an underdog so you really want her to to get out of this um i i think that you're you see the seeds here the seeds here are that she will do what targaryens do and that is she will kill and conquer it it's uh it's amazing how he has this elaborate uh large universe of characters but yeah. that he's able to kind of juggle these themes and these uh, tendencies of these characters through such a long sense of uh, uh-huh. uh chronology of uh, events now this also kind of I, I was i thought of in this chapter because i think we're like 12 chapters in and we haven't met danny yet this is the first danny pov in a clash mm-hmm. of kings and I was wondering, you know, this this was originally meant to be a three-book series, a trilogy. And I think that Danny's story really suffers from the extension of the of the series. You know, then uh it, in terms of going to a seven I think novel so. Series. Go, the expansion from three to five to seven or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It it almost feels like Danny has all of the equipment that she needs to take Westeros. She just needs these dragons to grow up. Yeah. And then then we it's on. It's it's fire and ice and they're going against each other. But by extending the series, you almost have to extend Danny's wheel spinning. You know, she she's got to st- you know, she's got to have a problem upon problem upon problem in Marine just to kind of delay her so that Martin can make this story, you know, wider and deeper. But I almost feel like Danny's character suffers because of that. I I think I agree with you. I I, I just I remember uh, when I initially read the the five books, I always felt this guy needs an editor. You're getting too far afield, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know why do you need all these characters over in this section? How do they fit into this uh-huh. central story of Danny and? Jon Snow yeah, and the, do the they... later chapters of the, of dance are like you're introduced to new characters that'll die that same chapter and yeah yeah um, and I'm thinking how does that benefit the overall trajectory of the story and I just think uh, Martin loves to expand and expand uh-huh. and expand but at a certain point you got to bring this thing to conclusion <laughs> I just hope he can in the next twenty years I know, you know? So I, know I know it. Yeah, Danny Danny's character, I think more than any other character, I think her narrative arc languishes. And uh, and I do think that he originally thought three books, here I have her in Karth. Um I'm going to have her build up strength uh in Marine and then and then the big battles on, but it, of course that it it continues to be delayed. That well, I think clash. in a lot of ways, as I look at the overall story, uh, and I'm very influenced by having seen the HBO series, but uh, 
I think Danny is at her most interesting when she's in Carth and she's out in Essos and mm. she's traveling and she's meeting these different exotic oh, things. Oh, that's a hot take. <laughs> and she's dealing with the slavers. But yeah. when she gets back to Westeros and this whole business about Tyrion being her advisor, uh-huh. I think that's where I feel like the whole thing is starting to unravel yeah, that's a bit. And... That's interesting. She kind of has that feeling... It's it's hard to know if the books are going to follow the series, but when she gets back to Westeros, it, it becomes one of these things where it's like, yeah, you could. What kind of ruler are you going to be? Are you going to be the mm-hmm. the kind of ruler who is loved, and and does that matter to you? And and are you going to deal with the White Walkers, or are you going to be more obsessed with your own uh-huh. getting on that Iron Throne? That's right. So, uh, That's right. Are you going to be jealous of John when you find exactly, out his yeah. you share with claim John, to the yeah. throne? She's almost a little bit, in this chapter, you know, at 14 years old, she's almost a little bit even more mature than the Danny we meet in the later parts of the series. Well, isn't there a theory that uh, uh, when she meets those wizards in Karth that yeah. uh, uh, one of them kind of brings out this worst aspect of the uh, Targaryen oh. uh, genetics in her, this this uh, oh. kind of uh, this violent... Uh, I haven't read about that one. I'm going to have to look that, that up. I was just reading about it last night, and I thought, oh, that is interesting. Yeah, that, so tell uh, me more about that. So you think that this, this wizard in Karth actually might trigger something in her? Yeah, there's a... Uh, uh, I was reading last night, and I can't bring it all up, but the, there's a... She gets sort of a a, a choice to make and she touches something that uh, the mm-hmm. wizard has uh, imbued with uh, uh, negative uh, energy and uh, uh, the, the person I was reading, it was a fan theory about it, is that uh, that is a turning point in her character and explains a lot of the uh, non-egalitarian violent urges in the character later on. Because if you just look at this chapter that we're talking about, she's uh, a pretty positive ruler. She's trying to get these people through. She uh, uh, is making good decisions. Uh, she's mm-hmm. not particularly violent at this point. Um, but we're going to see that coming out later. Now, if you contrast her with the other central character, Jon Snow, Jon Snow pretty much throughout the story uh, is never tempted to kind of go off on a dark binge the way that Danny is, uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah, John is one of these sort of more classically heroic protagonists, right? Yeah. But I will say that it's a little bit Donnie Brasco, where he kind of goes undercover, mm-hmm. falls in love with the culture. Yeah, yeah. And he, fa- he literally falls in love with Ygritte and uh, Ygritte and... I've always thought that the the romance with Egret is the strongest romance of the entire story, you know. It's, and it's it's very clear to me there's no romance in this uh series that ends well. No. And uh and that's foreshadowed in this story of Jorah and his uh, romance with the uh, Lady Hightower. So. For sure. You marry for love, you you things are going to end badly for you. I do feel like you know, killing Corn yeah. Halfhand I think that that does something to John, even though he kind of feels like he has to do it. Uh-huh. He doesn't keep his vows. He can't keep his vows. You know, he, he he that's the one thing that he feels very, very strongly about is that he's not going to yeah. consummate any kind of love relationship because he doesn't want to father a bastard. 
And then, of course, he falls in love with Egret, and he yeah. breaks that vow. And I, you know, the, you could say that yeah. that complicates his character in a way. And of course, at the end, the the last published book, the perception is that he has betrayed the Night's Watch entirely by letting the wildlings in. I always get the sense, though, that when when he does these mm. things, he is tortured by it. Uh, whereas with Danny, it's kind of like uh, her ambition mm. sort of overrides any sort of qualms about the things she has to do. And uh, and that's the central difference between the two characters, that John Snow does not yeah. want to sit on that Iron Throne. He's not driven by this lust for power, whereas Danny thinks that she is just that's her birthright she needs to be sitting on that thing even though she doesn't really know the people that she's going to rule she's not really lived in westeros mm-hmm. but she somehow thinks mm-hmm. that she's got to go back there and well, rule and everything well and i think that so, for uh, Dan- let me ask you this question about danny because i was reading this chapter and i was thinking now jorah leaves out this information about the fact that he was buying and selling people and spying for varies the two things that he leaves out that's yeah. right so he leaves out those two things I wonder what would have happened if he just came clean, totally clean, in this chapter. So you're suggesting honesty is the best policy. (laughs) I don't know. I'm asking. (laughs) Because I kind of feel like, at this point, he's all that she's got. Uh And he's demonstrated loyalty, and he could just say, look, I started out this way. I can see that you're clearly you know, the true queen of Westeros now. Please forgive me. I think she probably forgives him at this point. Well, later on when she finds out that he was working for Varys, she sees it that technically she should have him executed at that point. But yeah, but she decides uh, that oh, I'm going to forgive you by exiling you. So again, with the, with the exile. Yeah, yeah. So once again, <laughs> he's off on an exile. But of course, he uh-huh. comes. You know, at least in the HBO version, he comes back to her and sort of fights uh-huh. in a sort of stereotypical chivalric uh, fashion he That's fights right. to defend her at the at the, the big uh yeah in the coliseum yeah <laughs> right yeah 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 i don't feel like maybe she has the that taste for vengeance yet yeah well maybe it, maybe this this fan's uh uh theory about it is correct that that she's going to uh-huh. get corrupted later on but uh, yeah i don't know like i i feel like oh, that's a bad move jora you should have just come clean you have got a moment yeah. you've got this moment to come clean and the fact that he keeps the secret is is the thing that actually does him in in the end because what what he brings chief to the table besides his counsel besides his medal is he brings loyalty and that's what she needs and then it turns out that he's fundamentally disloyal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I kind of feel like this was Jorah's biggest mistake, not telling. Well, he's he's very strong as a physical warrior, but there's some his moral qualities have uh, some weaknesses that uh, uh, result in these kind of decisions, I suppose. So. Well, and you could say that there's a similarity here. Here he is putting himself forth as something that kind of he's putting on a a better face than he actually has when he falls in love yeah yeah which of course you know who doesn't want to do that right you know he for, for lenice what he does is he he comes off as a braver knight than he really is and maybe he puts himself forward as a, a wealthier lord than he really is 
And then with Danny, he puts himself forward as a more loyal counselor than he really is. Yeah, yeah. And and I think in in both cases, he's motivated by love. Well, he's going to get very jealous too when uh, uh, Danny has a series of uh, sure. uh, paramours coming up here uh, that uh, right. are going to set him off so <laughs> that's totally right that's totally right. all right notable introductions is chapter we meet the names of the dragons for the first time yeah Rhaegal, drogon and Viserion, and um, we hear about jorah's wife for the first time and of course we hear about this the the great city of karth for the first time i've always We're found introduced... it interesting that she names uh one of the dragons after her brother uh, Viserys who uh, was such a jerk to her and uh... yeah she says in this chapter she says this dragon will be everything that my brother was not wishful thinking I think but anyway yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also meet um, these three representatives from Karth and that would be Pratt uh, Zaro and Quaif yeah and uh, of course this brings us to one of the key differences in the show and that is you know danny has has to become kind of a beggar at the the gates of karth in the show uh-huh and and in this chapter basically you know jogo comes back with these three representatives who are interested in her dragons and i will note that the quaith narrative is introduced in the show and then dropped completely you've got this this woman with like a, a a full mask on that she meets, and she seems to be something, someone that knows something about her, and then the show just never picks that storyline up. It just drops it completely. You love her. Where are the dragons? Will you betray her again, Jorah the Undal? Will you betray her again? Never. The thief you seek is with her now. Anthony, I'm trying to remember here, in terms of what we just read, this chapter, the dragons are actually hatched because it describes one of them sitting on her shoulder when she's... Yeah, absolutely. But when she... In the in the HBO series, when she gets to Karth, doesn't there's still eggs because one of them is stolen, right? No, no, no this is this is a, so they they hatch at the end of season one. Oh, okay, right? all right. And she goes into the pyre, comes out with dragons. That, that there's that image of you know. Um, oh, right, yeah. When her hair burns who, off and all that, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then she's got them in kind of these little like cages. Okay, and that's that's what they steal in in Karth. They basically steal the. They, they they ransack her her apartment. They basically. steal baby dragons then, and they steal these baby dragons who are in little cages. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think they they made a couple of interesting choices to shift the narrative with Karth that really the show does for the first time because that first season was pretty faithful to the book. Uh-huh. And then in this, I think in this narrative with Karth, you f- really start to see the show diverge with a couple key details. Yeah. Uh, notable departures. Well, we see the departure, the deaths uh, along the road. Yeah. 
um we we see the the old man and the and the 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 young babe die and i guess i guess the dothraki have some kind of belief in reincarnation they they you know the, if a warrior dies they they create a pyre but if the baby dies it has to be reborn well there's this chapter has a lot of talk about ghost and uh she ref- yeah. she refers to Khal Drogo is still riding out uh you know as a ghost and that yeah. uh, they're afraid of going into Karth because or no I'm sorry that 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 city that they they meet along yeah, the, the way the ruined cities is supposed to be haunted right the, the people are afraid of going in because it's full of ghosts but uh, uh-huh. uh I love Jorah's response he says oh there's ghosts everywhere you know so what you know so so they they so Danny's not intimidated. She takes them in, and of course, there's fig trees and all sorts of things that allow them to to recharge, so to speak. That's right. But it seems that Jorah and Danny's power in this small community is that they are not as afraid of the superstitious beliefs and ghosts and spirits wandering about as uh, some of the other people. Yes. I, here, I'll just read this little section here. Um other searchers returned with tales of other fruit trees hidden behind the closed doors of the secret gardens. Ago showed her the courtyard overgrown in twisting vines and green grapes, and Jogo discovered a well where the water was pure and cold. Yet they found bones, too, the skulls of the unburied dead, bleached and broken. Ghosts, Eerie muttered. Yeah. Terrible ghosts. We must not stay here, Khaleesi. This is their place. And so I think that there's two things that's happening here. Number one, you're seeing that this ruined city uh, actually has enough resources for them to actually sojourn there for a bit. But you also see why other travelers haven't picked it over. Because no one wants to be around the ghosts, right? Yeah. It's the unburied dead, and uh, that's why this—that's why these resources are available to her. And no, no one else is brave enough to go into the city and brave the, you know, the the haunted ruins. Well, when you see a bunch of skulls lying around, you probably wonder, you know, is that well poisoned, or uh, you know, why, why exactly yeah, is I nobody here? You know, so a lot of ancient cultures believe. You know, this is why you do burial rituals. Yeah. Rituals. This is why you do pyres. It's like you you have to send people off in the right way, or else, right? So if now we see unburied dead, well, the, the, this is you know the, their their soul is lurking somewhere. Yeah, else. I think I think you're right about that. There's there's, there's some disjuncture here that uh, that that would certainly be apparent if you were traveling out of the desert and you come to a place and there's bones lying all over the place so well thank you jeff i i appreciate you jumping on and helping me cover this chapter that's to you anthony it's been a lot of fun and now throwback thursday with comic steve osborne have you ever ridden a horse I think I've gone on a pony ride at a park once. Did anyone tell you you could pick any horse you want? No, it was whatever one was next. So if you're watching Game of Thrones, the original series, do you get more of a sense that Winterfell is closer to the kind of culture that you study? Or is even having a a giant castle more than what you would expect from sort of you know ancient Icelandic yes. culture? Yeah, so um, you get you get some forts and things in in medieval Scandinavia, um, but I think castles 
are one of the things that are more central in fantasy literature because the the bigger castles come from the very late medieval mm, period yeah. um whereas i think they tend to get transplanted into fantasy literature at all stages of kind of um of fantasy culture development kind of big castles are a necessary part um whereas actually you know castles didn't get as grand as something like winterfell until very late mm-hmm. in in the middle ages you know and and then obviously some of the really really grand ones are actually kind of fake castles built by the victorians sure yeah. um you know with that and that shows you how early that idea of castles being something medieval begins to take root i also think in in the show winterfell is kind of in the middle of nowhere whereas presumably it would have been more of an urban center you know it, it's the heart of the north and right. yet in the show there's nobody anywhere near it, it it's just a big castle in the middle of a field um, and I feel that socially also wouldn't, you know, it, Winterfell would attract attract settlement, surely. So when I get a, a sense of like the cultures beyond the wall, I almost feel like that is trying to capture something about how Southern folk would have seen Northern folk. Um, in other words, what you're seeing beyond the wall and the cultures beyond the wall are sort of the worst fears that you know, people from the yes. South okay. have yeah, about people sort of... of the North. And so then I, I'm wondering, is there anything about the free folk that strikes a chord that, that actually does remind me of this particular people group? Um, so I think Martin is certainly, I would say, inspired by the idea of um, indigenous people um, of the far North. And I think he is trying to you know, he he bases some of the kind of tensions off that. Um, so Norse literature is quite interested in in some of it in exploring, you know, how um, the Norse people viewed the indigenous Sami people. Mm. Um, and, you know, there is a, I mean, there's a great kind of strand of, of, of academic research that explores um, the way in which uh, the literature depicts the Sami people often in in a quite um, racist fashion. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think he is inspired by that European cultural interaction that has, has gone on. I think that plays into his work, certainly. And I think actually, so I, I did a roundtable on um, Caroline Larrington's recent book, All Men Must Die, um, which is a kind of, she's discussing the show now that it's finished. And one of the points she raised that I thought was really interesting in her chapter on race at the end of the book was that the Indigenous peoples of the North um, in the show are allowed to articulate a kind of alternative social reality. You know, they engage with Jon Snow and they talk about kind of what is important to them and, right. and their culture and their way of living in a way that the, some of the indigenous peoples of the east are never allowed to by the show the key difference being of course that you know egret and tormund are white and mm. um the people that daenerys conquers in the east are not and caroline was really good at kind of drawing out the potential kind of implications of why um the show had potentially failed to adequately explore um indigenous voices um, in the east, as well as it explored them in the north, which which I thought was a really interesting point that she made. Right, and I think to me that's interesting because for some reason 
a very Eurocentric view of the Middle Ages is mm. that everything is almost happening in, in England and France and that every, yeah. everything else is sort of mar yeah. marginalized. Constantinople was, you don't get more dominant, more as mm. far as it being a fortified city, almost impossible to conquer. That, I mean, from, I guess, from one perspective, Constantinople was almost the center of culture. Oh yeah. There is there is a sense in which because it's so heavily it's so densely populated it's going to be difficult to sort of get a cultural foothold there maybe more and and, diff and more difficult to change an institution. Yeah, I think Dance of Dragons Daenerys' storyline is all about, you know, the culture of of Marine and kind of trying to reform it whilst also preserving you know some of its yeah its and you, you get the sense that that is a very ancient um, yes ancient culture um, and ancient institutions yeah and i think you know for them the kind of great rival was always valeria which is you know now fallen into yes into doom um whereas you know valeria kind of from westeros's perspective is is just a sort of a great myth of the past. I mean, it really belongs to a time gone by. Whereas I think you get the sense of, yeah, all those cities on Slaver's Bay, you know, they they belong to the same age as Valyria, really. Um, and so, yeah, I agree. You get this great sense of their kind of ancient rootedness in a way that, you know, the history of Westeros feels quite a lot more recent. Um, yeah. Particularly because, you know, whilst They've the Starks have been kings of winter for thousands and thousands of years, haven't they? But we don't really have any conception of what that means in terms of history and and what they actually remember. Because apart from building the wall, right, very little is kind of preserved from before the conquest that we are ever told about in in the books or the show, really. Right. Okay. So then, I guess with the influx of what we now call Turks from the east. Were they viewed with racial difference in a way that the Sarni were not viewed with racial difference? I'm, I'm just worried about projecting a modern racial construct onto yes. onto a culture that was going to be xenophobic no matter what the folks look like. Yeah, so I, again, I'm not a, a specialist um, in this area. Obviously, the kind of concept of race is something as a as a kind of analytical category owes much to scholarship um, and cannot be mm -hmm. always so easily kind of transplanted into these yeah. discussions. That's um, my sense. Sure. Yeah. So I think the main sense, I think, in some of the medieval literature that I look at is that the tension between inner and outer is always there. So mm -hmm. there is always, um, you know, you have inside society and that is somewhere kind of safe and protected. And I mean, particularly again in Icelandic literature, one of the key penalties in Icelandic law is outlawry, which means being thrown out of society. So you have no rights anymore. Nobody is supposed to help you. Nobody is supposed to, you know, feed you or shelter you. And you can be killed with impunity. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what it means to be, you know, outside, outside of society. And so I think there is obviously a strong... Uh, tendency in medieval literature for kind of you know 
in groups to be established and narratives are told from the perspective of that in group whether it be you know a particular cultural group or whether it be um you know a particular societal group um and so that is a constant i think feature of quite a lot of medieval literature um mm. which these tensions then play into but it can you know it is explored in lots of different ways including you know people who are cast out you know the outlaw sagas are a classic example of that where people are cast out of society um because kind of society they're too troublesome for society <laughs> um yeah. and they become kind of anti-heroes that literature is really interested in in exploring but ultimately will always come to tragic ends because once you're out of society death is almost a an inevitability really. right right yeah you don't you don't enjoy the the security of the tribe yeah, yeah.